Let us pray. Lord, would you this morning, as we're scattered about in our homes, in various places, would you this morning meet with us? Would we be aware of your spirit? Though we are not together physically, would there be a spiritual sense of togetherness this morning as we look at your word and consider what you might be saying to us and teaching us? And Lord, I pray that this morning during these anxious and strange times that you would give comfort to your people. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. <clears throat> well, good morning. It's a strange morning. <laughs> uh, preaching to an empty room and all of you gathered and scattered in your homes uh, throughout our cities and throughout our country and even throughout our world. Last, last week we had people live streaming from Japan and from all over the world, so um, that's a pretty cool thing. These are very strange and unprecedented and anxious and scary times. And I'm personally glad this morning that we have the opportunity to come together for prayer and for worship, to look at God's Word, and I, I do pray that we would be comforted. I'm grateful for this story in particular as we um, follow the lectionary cycle. This is the story, this is the passage that we come to this morning in the, past, in the Gospel of John. And I'm thankful to God for his providence because I believe that there's comfort for us here and that this is a particularly appropriate and important word for us this morning. So, to get there, we have to start with about 30 seconds of some philosophy. Now, I know that Preaching 101 says that you need a strong introduction. You need to grip the congregation right from the beginning and I know that for most of us, philosophy is not something that we would consider very gripping. But we need 30 seconds of this in order to get to where we're going. So, so bear with me. Bear with me as we unpack a little bit of philosophy. So here we go. As humans, we live in particular time and space. And as humans, we can't help but be shaped by the time and space in which we find ourselves. So for us, as 21st century people living in the Western world, we're broadly Enlightenment people. And that means that we're shaped and influenced by the Enlightenment movement that happened here in the West in the 18th century. Even if you don't know it, even if you don't want it to be true, even if you fall asleep at the mention of philosophy, you are, we all are, shaped and influenced more than we realize by these philosophical undercurrents of our culture and society. It's like the wallpaper in the room, or it's like the water that a fish finds himself swimming in. So, with that being said, there, there are a couple things that are important. First, it's important to become aware, to see, to see who or what you're being shaped by, to discern, to become aware of how you're a product of your environment. And then second, after we've done that work, it's important to discern how the ways that we're wired as 21st century Western post-Enlightenment people might be contrary to the ways of Jesus. How are we missing out on the true life that Jesus 
has for us because of the water that we're swimming in. And can we raise our head above water for just a bit to observe a truer and better way? So I say all that, I start with that philosophy, to say that, that perhaps there are elements in this passage, and I believe there's a very important element for our particular time and day, that expose ways that we as post-enlightenment people live contrary to the ways of Jesus. There's one important element here, and I'll give it to you right up front, I won't leave you hanging. The ways that we, as 21st century Western, post-enlightenment, rationalistic, individualistic people, live are contrary to the ways that Jesus and others throughout Scripture live, especially when it comes to the ways that we deal with what's going on inside of us, our feelings, our emotions, our interior life, our heart. And we're ultimately stunted as humans and as followers of Jesus until we see this, and until we begin to lean into the way of being that we see in Jesus and others throughout Scripture. So that's what I want to do this, this morning as we look at this passage in the Gospel of John. And I want to look specifically at the main characters that we see in this passage. First, Martha and Mary, and finally, of course, Jesus. <clears throat> so first, Martha. We see in this passage that Jesus shows up on the scene in Bethany where his close friend Lazarus has just died. Martha and Mary are Lazarus' sister, and they're rightly mourning and grieving Lazarus' death. Now when Jesus shows up, when, Mary, when Martha hears that Jesus is coming, she stands up and hurries to greet him on his way. And then we see in verses 21 and 22, Martha says to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Now I want you to pause there. And I want you to notice with me that I think there's perhaps some hurt that Martha's feeling as she makes that statement. Where were you? We let you know that our brother Lazarus was sick and was on his deathbed. Where were you? You, you could have done something. Why weren't you here? You can hear perhaps in that statement her hurt, her loneliness, her sadness. But then I want you to notice that, that Martha quickly cleans it up. She adds a second statement. She says, But even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. So Martha hears Jesus is coming. She goes to greet him. She greets him reverently and kindly. She's composed. She expresses her hurt, but then she quickly cleans it up. She ties a neat bow on it. And I think that Martha here is a model for how we're supposed to behave as Christians in our 21st century world. I'm putting air quotes there in case you're listening to the audio. We're supposed to behave as Christians in the 21st century world. Hold it together. Let's not become overcome with emotion. Be composed. Be reverent. Don't you trust God? Don't lose hope. Have faith. This, of course, is all over our culture. Big girls don't cry, right? Real men don't cry. You're supposed to be strong and showing your emotions, crying, showing feeling is a sure sign of weakness. But notice, on the other hand, Martha's sister, Mary. Look at her reaction. So the text tells us that 
When they hear that Jesus is coming, Martha stands to go greet him. But Mary, John is explicit about this, Mary remains seated. Why might that be? We don't know for sure, so we can imagine, but, but I imagine that, that perhaps she's too busy grieving. She's too sad, too maybe hurt. Finally, Martha goes to Mary and says, hey, Jesus is coming. You need to go meet him. So when Mary goes to meet Jesus, she, unlike Martha, does not hold it together. She's not composed. Look at verse 32. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet. And then we know from verse 33 that Mary is weeping. And the Greek word behind that English word weeping implies not like this kind of composed shedding a tear or two, but it implies an audible wailing and lamenting and weeping, a messy sort of crying, weeping loudly. So this isn't like a reverent falling to her feet. This is a falling to her feet in desperation, overcome with emotion and feeling, weeping, grieving, wailing loudly. So Mary comes to Jesus, falls at his feet, and she makes the exact same statement that her sister Martha had made in verse 32. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But notice this time that, that that's it. Mary doesn't put a bow on the hurt that she's experiencing, the sadness, the loneliness that she's feeling. She doesn't clean it up. She expresses her pain and leaves it at that. Where were you, Jesus? Why did you not do something? This flies in the face of the ways that we're supposed to act as 21st century Western followers of Jesus. But look with me at how Jesus responds. Does Jesus scold Mary? Come on, Mary. Keep it together. Where is your faith? Do you not have faith and hope like your sister Martha does? Jesus doesn't do that. Jesus does not respond that way. We incorrectly believe that faith and feeling are at odds with one another. If you have feelings about something, if you have hurt, sadness, loneliness, whatever it might be, then surely you must not have faith, but that's not how we see this passage playing out. You can have deep faith and true hope and still feel and still bring real pain to our Lord. Jesus doesn't scold Mary. Instead, we see that Jesus meets Mary in her pain. He empathizes with her. That Jesus himself feels deep pain. Look at verse 33. When Jesus saw Mary weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And then in verse 35, we see what's going on inside of Jesus come out on the outside in this short and beautiful verse that simply says, Jesus wept. Jesus wept. Jesus weeps with his grieving sister Mary. And this is the pattern that we see over and over and over throughout the gospel accounts of Jesus. Jesus sees Jesus is moved to feeling, compassion, and then Jesus acts. It's clear here in the Gospel of John, but I'll show you accounts in the other Gospel accounts of Jesus too. So look, 
Look at Luke chapter 7, verse 13. And when the Lord Jesus saw her, he had compassion on her and said, Do not weep. And then in Matthew chapter 14, this same pattern. When Jesus went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them, and he healed their sick. And then in Mark chapter 6, this same pattern again. When Jesus went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them, because they were like sheep without a shepherd. Do you see that pattern over and over? Jesus sees, Jesus feels deeply, and then Jesus acts. Jesus responds. Now, in these three instances, this word compassion in Greek is, is an interesting one. The Greek word is splotnitsamai. Splotnitsamai. It's, it's an emotional feeling that you experience to such a degree that you, that you feel it physically. It comes from the Greek noun splachnon. Now, even if you're at home, I want you to say that word with me, splachnon. Say it with me, splachnon. You hear how guttural it is? It's, it's, it's a physical, guttural-sounding word, and it literally means insides or intestines or even bowels. And that's how the King James Version of the Bible translates this word splachnon as, as bowels. So this compassion that Jesus feels is something that he experiences physically. Like when we say in English that something was so painful that it was gut-wrenching. Like you feel it on your inside. So we see from our Lord that Jesus feels deeply. That he's so aware of what's going on outside of him that it moves him on his inside. It affects him on his inside. And he's aware of what's happening on his interior as well. We see in our Lord that Jesus feels. And of course, the book of Psalms. The Psalms are filled with people, worshipers of God who are feeling deeply, who are expressing deep sorrow, gut-wrenching emotions to their Lord. And so as we consider Martha and Mary and Jesus and the psalmist, what about you? What's your reaction to all of that? Is your reaction you know what, that's not really for me. Or maybe even, if you're really honest, that sounds sort of foreign and even weird. Or maybe even that's fine for Martha and Mary and Jesus, for the psalmist, but for me, you know, I don't really have emotions going on inside of me. If you find yourself with those responses, I'd suggest to you that maybe you're functioning more in the ways of our 21st century modern post-enlightenment world instead of flourishing as a follower of Jesus in relationship with God, in relationship with others, as the full person that God created you to be, social, intellectual, physical, spiritual, and yes, even emotional person. One of my favorite books is um, a book by... A pastor in New York City named Peter Scazzaro um, called Emotionally Healthy Spirituality. And in that book, Pete writes this. I think this is important. Christian spirituality without an integration of emotional health can be deadly to yourself, to your relationship with God, 
and to the people around you. Christian spirituality without an integration of emotional health can be deadly. Why is that? Why is that? I think it's because Christian spirituality without emotional health, without being aware of what's happening inside of you, being able to express that rightly to God and to others, means that it's, it's not real relationship. It's not real relationship. There's no intimacy. There's no depth there. In his book, Pete goes on to describe what he calls the iceberg model that most of us live by, describing most, the ways that most of us live. So think about an iceberg that's pictured on the screen. An iceberg, um, only about 10% of the iceberg is visible to our eye above the surface. But underneath the surface, there are layers and layers of iceberg that aren't visible to us. That's how most of us function and operate. We're aware of and we express to God and to those we're close with about 10% of what's happening. But there's 90% more underneath the surface. There's layers and layers of complexity. Perhaps that we don't know what to do with. Perhaps that we are not even aware of. But for sure, we don't talk about with other people. And for sure not with God. Because it sometimes might not feel reverent. Pete goes on to write in his book, Emotional health and spiritual maturity are inseparable It is not possible to be spiritually mature while remaining emotionally immature. It is not possible to be spiritually mature while remaining emotionally immature. Again, because that is not real relationship. If you're not bringing your whole self, not just the 10%, but the 100% of yourself to God, then there's no intimacy, there's no depth. Consider again the psalmist, there's a depth in the Psalms. There's a rawness, an authenticity. There's deep intimacy there. And if you're not bringing your whole self to those who you're closest with, then that's not real relationship either. No intimacy, no depth. So what do we do with all that? Well, Jesus in this passage gives some of the most hopeful words, I think, in all of Scripture. In verse 25, Jesus says this important, significant, hopeful, beautiful phrase. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. I am the resurrection and the life. And if you study the Gospel of John, you see that the way that Jesus uses the word life throughout his earthly ministry is, is interesting. And the way that Jesus uses the word life, even the words eternal life, are not necessarily only about future reality, though that's true. Eternal life is something that we look forward to in the future with our Lord. But as Jesus uses these words throughout the Gospels, especially in the Gospel of John, it's also about life here, in this present moment. Look at um, John chapter 10, just a chapter earlier in verse 10, John 10, 10. Jesus says, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. In fact, resurrection life, life as we were meant to experience it, abundant life. But in order to experience the rich eternal life, the resurrection life that Jesus offers, there has to be resurrection. 
And of course, for there to be resurrection, there has to be death. Now, we all experience all sorts of mini-death as we walk through our lives, don't we? Grieving the loss of a loved one or family member, losing a job, experiencing rejection, isolation, walking through sickness, poor health, anxiety, and fear. These are all many deaths that we experience throughout our lives. And the good news of Jesus is that on the other end of death, there is resurrection life. When we're able to talk about and experience and be aware of what's happening inside of us as we walk through these many deaths. And of course, this is the very basis, the foundation of our Christian life. We say in our baptism liturgy that in the waters of baptism we are buried with Christ in his death so that we can be raised with him and share in his resurrection. The basis of our life with Jesus is admitting our powerlessness, admitting our sinfulness, admitting our death. When we come to Jesus, we confess that we're sinful people, that we're needy people. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2 that we're a dead people apart from God's enlivening, awakening grace in Jesus Christ. So the basis of the Christian life is being honest with who we are. Sinners dead apart from the grace of God. And the foundation of our life as disciples, as followers of Jesus, is being honest about the many deaths that we experience over and over time and time again in our lives. So I'm encouraged because I think this is an important passage, an important message for us to wrestle with, especially in this particular cultural moment in which we find ourselves. Because the invitation is, whatever you're experiencing, whatever you're feeling, whatever many death you're walking through, that you can bring that to your Lord. You can give voice to it. You can express it. And just like Jesus doesn't scold or chastise Mary, he won't scold you. He'll meet you. He won't say, come on, where's your faith? Where's your hope? He will meet you in your pain and in your sadness. Because Jesus ultimately took on death, the ultimate death, on our behalf, so that we can experience this life in Him, filled with the Spirit, in relationship with the triune God. Now, I so want this for you. I so want you to experience this rich resurrection life. I so want you to bring what's going on inside of you to the Lord so that you can experience Him meeting you right where you are. I promise that you will experience deeper and richer, more abundant life than perhaps you thought possible with God and others. And I'm sure about that promise that I can extend to you. Not only because of the words, the faithful words in Scripture, but also because it's my own story. For years, I interacted with and followed Jesus in a sort of head-first, intellectually driven sort of relationship. Only aware of, only talking about that, that 10%. 
if I were honest during these years, which I don't know if I would have been able to say this, I would have confessed that I found the Psalms strange, foreign, perhaps even scandalous. But the epistles, on the other hand, Paul's letters, the theological richness, the depth, and I could, I could get behind that. And I, I still can. I still love studying and theology, intellectualism, and, and that's good. And that's important for us as, as Christians to study and to think deeply. But then several years ago, I walked through a, a painful season in my own life, a dark night of the soul, a mini death. And as I walked through that season, there was nothing left for me to do except to bring my whole self to God and to other people that I was in close relationship with. And as I journeyed that road, I found deeper in intimacy, deeper, richer intimacy with God, with others, more abundant life than I had ever experienced and than I even thought possible. And all of a sudden, I found the Psalms making sense to me. Even the Psalms giving voice to some of what was happening in, in my own heart and life. So that's my prayer for you this morning and for me. That we, especially in this strange time, might experience rich and new depth in our relationship with God and others as we do the very hard work of being aware of what's happening inside of us and talking about that, bringing our whole selves to God and others, honestly, vulnerably, weakly, knowing that he will meet us graciously and kindly. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen.